Southern Skies. Online Media. folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 49 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view, sitting here on an unusually cold and chilly blustery Melbourne afternoon. Whatever happened to summer? I'm Steve Vischer and with me as always is a suitably chilled Grant McHeron. G'day mate. Hey mate, how you going? I tell you what mate, what happened to all this global warming stuff? It's I'm freezing to death here, it's in it's the middle of December. Yeah, I think everyone's trying to change the stats. It looked like 2010 was going to be one of the uh, warmest years on record since we started recording back back in the 1800s or so. Uh, But if December came through a little chilly, it was just going to come out as warm, not warmest. Mm, well, I don't know. It's not too warm here. I actually went out today and tried to mow the yard and, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite boggy out there. It's been quite wet. So I guess that's a good thing, really, when you look at it, uh, you know, from that point of view. Well, we have been in a drought for a number of years, mate, so uh, it's kind of good to see enough rain coming through to flood areas as opposed to the poor guys going, yay, we've got nothing. And of course, you know, now, of course, uh, speaking of flying, we've got locusts flying everywhere and uh, they're marching their way steadily south. I actually haven't seen any this far south yet, although uh, some people have been reporting seeing the odd one here or there, but uh, some of the pictures we've seen of the swarms up in the uh, you know the south of New South Wales and the north of Victoria, uh, pretty devastating actually. Indeed, between the locusts and the floods and everything, but they're still reporting that it's going to be a bumper crop year, even though we've got all these pests. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, another big episode of the show coming up this week, folks. We're going to kick it off with an interview with Rosemary Arnold, and who might you ask is Rosemary Arnold? Well, she was in fact Australia's first female helicopter pilot, uh, getting her license back there in the mid 1960s. Uh, she dropped in. Actually, she heard our interview with Deborah Laurie back at episode 35 and uh, made contact with us and we were glad that we could finally record an interview with her and uh, Grant, that's, uh, she's, she's a really funny lady to talk to, isn't she? It was uh, very entertaining and uh, quite a great interview. Yeah, she's a wonderful lady and a lot of fun. Uh, it was great to catch up with her and David uh, when they were down here in Moorabbin and uh, then we got her on the show for the interview and uh, absolutely wonderful. Really, really great to meet her and uh, she's done some wonderful stuff. Yeah, really interesting. So that'll be the first interview and then we're going to follow that up with a bit of a chat with Dan Morris. Now, Dan lives over there in New Zealand and we've been uh, talking for a while about trying to get more New Zealand content on the show and uh, Dan's uh, been quite a supporter of the show. He's uh, always uh, sending information across to us as he comes across you know, news articles that uh, you know pop up in the papers there and whatnot. And uh, you know, Dan's also helped us out uh, once on the Airplane Geeks doing one of our themed segments there, which we had a lot of fun doing. So uh, yeah, Dan's going to uh, drop in and have a bit of a chat about uh, the state of play, the way things are looking in the GA and the, uh, I guess the the RA scene or the equivalent thereof over there in, uh, over there in the Shaky Isles, Grant. So uh, that was quite an entertaining uh, interview that we did with him. Uh, a few weeks ago we did that and uh, a lot of outtakes, a lot of which we had to leave out permanently, but uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun recording <laughs> that one too. <laughs> only only because the uh, statute of limitations hasn't expired yet. <laughs> yeah. So that'll be the second interview coming up. And also uh, Ben Epolito, ATC Ben, returns with his very popular Controller's Corner segment. That'll be Controller's Corner number three and uh, answering some more of your questions about how things look from the other side of the scope. And we've had a 
feedback of listener mail, so we're going to go through a few of those. We've got some shout-outs to some uh, great friends of the podcast who've uh, been uh, really kicking goals lately. So, yeah, Grant, another really packed episode. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty full lineup. Uh, I think that the postman's going to charge you extra for bringing all that mail in, man. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Uh, oh, well, there you go. Well, he, he's already getting danger money from uh, braving Charlie, the official PCDU dog. So, yes, uh, yes. There you go. Charlie, who leaps up and tries to lick him to death. Absolutely, absolutely. Good old Charlie. The most fearsome dog in our court. Actually, I think he's the only dog in our court, Grant. Well, there you go. <laughs> All right, enough of that silliness. Let's kick off with our first interview with Rosemary Arnold. Back in episode 35, we spoke to a pioneer of uh, women's aviation in this country, Australia's first female airline pilot, Deborah Laurie. A fascinating interview that was too, one of my favourites in fact. Well, one of uh, Deborah's really close friends is Australia's first female helicopter pilot. That's Rosemary Arnold. She joins us on the line now. Hi there, Rosemary. Hello to you both. How's it going for you? Well, always good. Always. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Well, Rosemary, uh, gee whiz, we've been looking through your uh, your bio here and uh, some of your websites, and uh, geez, you do some really interesting things with aviation. But uh, we'll uh, we'll go back like we do with most of our guests and have a bit of a chat about uh, how you got into aviation in the first place and uh, how your journey's gone since then. Right. Um, I had four young children by the time I was 26, and then I found out what caused it. Uh, <laughs> I then went out and uh, took up a hobby of flying. And once I had tasted flying, I just couldn't put it down. So I realized that I wanted to go on and become a commercial pilot, and that's what I did. Okay. So that was 1962 in Bankstown, and I learned on a Cessna 172 to start with. And then I went up to the Aero Club and did 100 hours on chipmunks, aerobatic flying. Cool. Yes, I, it, it really stood me to good stead because I then switched to helicopters in 1965 and the aerobatic flying seemed to be a, a great prelude to the sensitivity of a helicopter and its controls. Okay, because back then helicopters, I mean, the joke was it was like balancing an egg on top of a needle. Oh, there were so many jokes that we couldn't, we haven't got time for them all. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were a lot more twitchy than they are now, yeah? Well, I learned on a two-seater Hughes. It was the Hughes 269A model. And everybody would say to me, oh, you've, you've learned on a Hughes, you can now fly anything. And <laughs> I think oh, I had no idea what they really meant until I got into a Bell 47. And it just flew beautifully like a grandmother. You know, <laughs> if grandmothers fly, that is. Yeah. <laughs> but, one, uh, one of the interesting things that I just see here on your, on your website is that uh, not only did you learn in that, Hughes, but you did it rather quickly. Yes, I, I tend to do things quickly. You know, I'm an Aries and I lead with my head and then think afterwards. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, yes, I did it in, um, I fronted up to... Well, by, the way I found a helicopter to fly, because there were no flying schools, uh, I was at the Avmar bookshop run by Nancy Ellis Liebold at Bankstown, and she, I was buying a book on how to fly a helicopter because I'd heard test pilot Randy Green from de Havilland say it was worthwhile having a go. So I bought the book, and she said, Oh, I know of an instructor. Here's his card. And Bob Larder worked for Namco, and the owners of Namco had bought this little Hughes to learn on it themselves, and they'd co-opted Bob, who'd been the only rotary wing person in DCA. So uh, DCA, he now was... worked for them, and the father and son were learning, 
and to cover their taxes, they set up a flying school. So it was really the first one, apart from helicopter utilities, which was only there to train their own staff. Um, it was the only one around. So, so I phoned up to Bob and I said, I want to learn to fly a helicopter quite boldly. And he said, when? And I said, now. <laughs> and I had four kids in the car and a little mini minor on a hot hot day. And he said, oh, gee, can you come back after five o'clock? I said, sure. So I raced home and found a babysitter and uh, then went back for my first flight. Now, that was the 1st of September in 65, and I only had 350, I think it was pounds in those days. The dollar was just coming in, and I was going to do an instructor rating, so that was all I had, but I needed a 1,000. And, you know, here it was me, Bowlesborough, saying I want a helicopter license. And after this first ride, he said to me, do you know there's not another woman who has qualified as a helicopter pilot in Australia? And he said the boss has offered it to his daughter and his daughter-in-law, but neither of them seemed to be interested. So that took me home with great haste and I sat up all night typing, begging letters to Arnott's Biscuits and sponsors saying, this is what I want to do. Can you give me some sponsorship money? Which none arrived. So I went back anyway and I I had found the money and uh, I did the 40 hours training in three weeks actually, but four weeks if you counted that first flight. So it was very, very busy and very strenuous. I was a real slip of a thing then with hardly any meat on the bones and not a lot of energy and the energy involved in learning to fly like four hours a day was absolutely hectic. Um, It's three times as tiring as fixed wing and I was flying at 7.30 till 9.30 in the morning and 5.30 till sunset in the afternoon. Why why not uh, during the middle of the day? Oh, Because Bob had been hired by Namco as a sales manager so he had to do his office work (laughs) this day. Now, you said Bob was ex-DCA. That's uh, civil aviation, yeah? Yep. Now CASA, of course. Yeah, now CASA. So he had left the government to come back out to uh, so-called real. Yes. He he was the only person in Rotary Wing in in CASA. So they didn't really like him. Uh, You know, they didn't like him stepping out of the ranks. And there was a little bit of a feud with one of the top guys at the time. But anyway, I copped it later. That feud that went on, I copped later when I went from a commercial test. I suppose uh, back at that time in the, in the mid-60s, I suppose helicopters on the civil register were probably not a big thing. I suppose they were far more the domain of the military more than anything else in this country. Uh, no, it was helicopter utilities who had them all. They were also known as Airfast, and uh, they were the big operator of the South Pacific. Just let me take you back a minute. Yep. Uh, my licence number, private licence, was number 10. Wow. But... It probably was meant to be number three because this father and son at Namco, whose name escapes me, they had taken out private licenses. And in those days, license sequence that were given to like three in Queensland, three in New South Wales, three in Victoria, something like that. So, But even getting number 10 was a pretty uh, odd thing. <laughs> so that's helicopter license as opposed yeah, to... A- private license. Okay. So now moving on, uh, you've had your license a few years and in 1969 you took yourself across to the US and uh, did quite an epic flight there as well. Yes, I got both my commercials in 67 
which is yet another story. But uh, when I became a helicopter pilot, I got a cable from Washington saying, welcome number 99. And I said to myself, who do I know in Washington, D.C.? You know, nobody. <laughs> and so it turned out that the Whirly Girls were the international helicopter pilots, and they kept tabs on everyone who was getting a license throughout the world. And so I, it was formed for the first 100 in the world, and I became 99th. And this was the most coveted number because there's a group called the 99s, which are international. And the girls in America were all vying to get to be 99th Whirly Girl, and I fluked on it without knowing. (laughs) This this sort of gave me quite a prominence in the Whirly Girls because everybody knew me as 99. (laughs) It turned out I was the first in Australia, the first in the Southern Hemisphere, and I remained the only one in Australia for 12 years. So that was pretty rare. But yes, I then I thanked the person who sent me a Whirly Girl charm with 99 written on it. It had come from the Hughes Company, and they just automatically sent you out a charm. And But I tend to reply to what used to be called like photocopied um, letters in those days, you know, with a, a stamp for a signature. But <laughs> when you write back and say, thank you for your letter, the person says, I don't remember writing to her. So it turned out <laughs> it was the vice president of the Hughes Company. And his last name was Hopper, and my maiden name was Hopper. So I said, you know, what about the family tree? So he always referred to me as his Australian cousin. That's cool. And he was close friends with Howard Hughes, who I almost met. But uh, I said, well, I'm coming over for the helicopter conference. Is there any chance I can get a ride across from California to Florida? So this man, Ray Hopper, organized it, and it was the first 500, use 500 off the assembly line for commercial use in the world. Oh, nice helicopter. Oh, there were two of them going in tandem across the states to the conference. Nice. And I stood by while they came off. They came off the assembly line and they had an experimental tag written on them and the blokes pulled the tag off and put it on me. (laughs) I I wore this experimental tag all through the conference. That's awesome. But yes, we we flew. um, They just handed me the controls straight off. I logged 33 hours on the on the Hughes, which is a gas turbine, has the Allison engine, yeah. and I'd just done the gas turbine course with Hawker Pacific, the ground theory course, which you have to do before you can fly a turbine, and so it all worked into a nice little happy pattern. Yeah, I logged 33 hours. Uh, going across the country, it took, uh, flight time took 20 and a half hours, but this was my first visit to the States, and uh, here we had two, two Hughes helicopters with several pilots, one engineer, one one photographer who was Jamie Russell, which is Jane Russell's son, uh, brother. And the, these guys would follow the highway, you know, going along, no flight plans or anything, just following the highway at treetop height. And they'd say, oh, anyone want a burger? You know, oh, there's uh, Howard Johnson's down there. We'll drop in there. And they'd just land in the in the parking lot amongst the cars. <laughs> and then at one occasion, they didn't like the look of the one that side of the road, so there's always one on the other side of the highway as well. So we popped across and sat in the other parking lot. <laughs> it's the awesome. things they did. 
did, you know, and they used to fly till sort of nine o'clock at night, which, uh, you know, we didn't even have night VMC here then, yeah. um, that rating. Yeah. So it was very new to me and very exciting. Cool. Now, the 500 is a beautiful helicopter. I, uh, mm. I got to fly. I'd always loved it, and I got to fly in one in Hawaii where you took the doors off and went low over the lava. Oh, that yes. Was, that was just yeah. an amazing ride. Mm, I would. Okay, yeah. so you did, the, you did the big flight over to Florida. Uh, what happened uh, at the conference? How was that? Oh, well, like, I was so in love with Hughes from the very first because I'd flown the 269A, but I was so grateful. They were picking up all my tabs at the hotels and everywhere. So wow. I was treated like a princess for a whole month that I stayed there. I didn't put my hand in my pocket once. That's nice. And so in re- return, I hosted their suite. And I met all the big shots in the whole world of helicopters. You know, Alan Bristow and um, a guy called, I think it was Bobby Suggs, who owned Petroleum Helicopters, I think is the name okay. of his. I, I think he owned 90 helicopters. But I was, here's me, first time out of Australia, and, and I'm hobnobbing with all these people. <laughs> oh, and one person I sat next to at a dinner was F. Lee Bailey, the, the lawyer, and he was connected uh, with the startup of the Enstrom, and that was another helicopter oh, okay. that I liked. Okay, so after the conference, uh, you made your way back to Australia, or did you stay in the US for longer? Oh, no, I, I had four kids and naturally I had to come back um, but yeah. uh, I did stay there for the full month I'd put a housekeeper in to mind the kids and that they were fine but uh, you know I had to get back okay um, I finally uh, you know did buy my own helicopter which ended up it was a bell and operated it yeah so that, that would be uh, helicopter promotions was that the company you started yes it was helicopter promotions I called it it was basically joyriding and photography work uh, I found that the niche that the guys didn't like was the joyride circuit uh, it was far too tedious for them and so rather than compete on shooting commercials and things which I did as well but rather be very competitive with the, my male counterparts I, I stuck to the joyride circuit which I thoroughly enjoyed and I would uh, go into hospital fates you know peg myself out of a horse paddock next door to the, the hospital and operate out of there for the day and you, you you know you might take well my maximum was 276 passengers in one day that's a lot of hauling that's because you well, can carry gonna, three per load yeah yeah well uh, it was an eight it's only an eight hour day is all you were allowed to fly and uh, my maximum was 75 takeoffs and landings in one day <laughs> that's and intense that was pretty heavy that was i think at um mudgy air show or one of those out that way. Yeah. I always find it interesting, like uh, even people that don't fly, if, if there's an aeroplane around, people seem to have a bit of a natural fascination with it. But if you bring a, a helicopter into any sort of situation like that, it really does really does grab people's interests. Well, apart from me raising money for the hospital, which, you know, I gave always gave back charity money to the hospital on the number of rides I did, the number of people on the paddock fence, they were there to see blood, of course. <laughs> the spectators always think they're going to see a crash. So, you know, you've got thousands of people watching you. I, I used to quip that uh, my aim in life was never to commit aviation in a public place. 
(laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, I have kept to that, and I didn't. I haven't even scratched a helicopter, let alone bend one. But uh, I might have come close a few times, but that'll be in my book. (laughs) (laughs) Did did, did the um, so did having all those people hanging over the fence, watching, waiting to see blood? Did that? were you able to just ignore them and fly or was that always in the back of your mind? Yes, because I've always been heavily into positive thinking and if you have, which I did, at least 100 times in a helicopter joyride day, I would hear the words, a woman pilot will all be killed. Now, the amount of negativity that that puts into a pilot, you know, you've really got to work hard against it. But uh, every male would come to the door and as they were about to get in, they'd say, oh, a woman pilot will all be killed. And what they were really saying was, look at me, I'm very brave, I'm going to fly with a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, if you're really worried about it, don't get in. No, we've taken their money. <laughs> I uh, had long queues yeah. of people wanting to ride. I, it was amazing. Now, um, we, not long ago we were talking with Dick Smith and uh, he was listing some of the helicopters he's owned and he, he I think I think he pointed out that uh, his original Jet Ranger is still flying around with uh, Channel 7 over in Adelaide or something like that. Oh, yes. Um, your uh, Jet Ranger there, I think, was THH. Um, it was a 47J model. It was the one that Elvis Presley flew in all his movies, the Blue Hawaii movies. The pilot sits up front, and then there's a bench seat behind with three passengers. So it's a four-seater Bell 47J. J2A was the model. Yeah, it was turbocharged, but not a turbo. So how long did you have that? I had it a few years. Yes, it was very old. I paid $29,000 for it and I got a spare engine. And this was when the helicopter utility fleet were being auctioned off. And so I bought this one and I needed to put the engine in straight away because the books were, well, a little unreliable. The engine was absolutely croaked. Oh, great. Was in it, and it actually let me down. I, I got. I was doing joyrides on the Seaforth Oval, just near Manly there, and I took off over the cyclone wire fence over the Middle Harbour, which is known to be uh, shark breeding territory. Oh, great. Yeah, at Ammunition Bay, I think it might be called. And I just got over there and the engine started to splutter. So I did what we're told not to do and I turned back to the field because I was not going to go into that water. <laughs> you didn't and want to be shark bait. No. And so I, I just dumped it on the oval ground and uh, it was the shortest circuit that poor joyriders had ever had you know? <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for the money we're back Woo-hoo. <laughs> so I, I did limp it back into i limped it back into bankstown and just said to my lamey max man change the engine yeah faster fast solution mm. how long do you so you kept the bell 47 for a few years what did you do yes. at the end of that? i after that i operated a, an enstrom which was a three-seater and it, I enjoyed operating that. It was a good little machine. It never let me down. It was good joyriding because big windows and things. Okay. And then after that, I had a huge 500 in Sydney that I was operating for a man while he was learning to fly, which he never got around to doing. So yeah. We went to <laughs> the, you know, we went down to Cooma and the car races at Bathurst and did a few interesting things like that while I operated it. So it looks mm. like in the, in the mid 80s you uh, took your uh, company overseas to the US. Oh, yes, that, that was. March 83, I went to the States on a job offer 
and the job offer was just far too good to knock back. And I thought I knew these people. I'd met them at helicopter conferences over the years, and uh, that you know you don't always know them. So I, when I got there, I did a flight test with the FAA and passed, and everything seemed to be going okay. But um, shall we say I failed the casting couch test? Oops. Oops. <laughs> yeah. And somebody said to me, oh, are you an actress? I said, no, if I was an actress, I wouldn't have failed the casting (laughs) (laughs) So I lost the job, and I only had a one-way ticket. So I sort of was thrown onto my own resources and stayed there. So uh, it was hard going. It's a real survival thing when you're in a foreign country. You're really not accepted. It's not an easy life at all. But it was a very good opportunity. I always believe that, you know, uh, I'm placed in a position where I am meant to be and I have to find what the reason behind it is. So it's called bloom where you're planted. And (laughs) I happened to be planted there and I thought, okay, well, all that's left for me to do is to bloom. So I set up my own uh, company actually over there. Okay, Uh, they let you do that as a foreigner. Yes, but you can only own 25% of your company. Ah, So you really haven't got control. And I hired a a high-hour pilot, like as a partner, Um, but he was ex-Vietnam and had a lot of problems, including drinking. And, uh, you know, over there, you've just, uh, things are a lot laxer than here. You know, they fly with hangovers and they they do their own maintenance. And I I really didn't like how things were happening. But um, I actually grossed $35,000 in the first month. And that was in the 80s? That was 83, uh, 85. Wow, that's a lot back then. Yes. It's uh, a lot now. <laughs> it was, we were doing mostly film work and we were being paid in cash as you are in Las Vegas. Nice. Uh, and, you know, you'd meet them in the desert and get handed $7,000, you know. And you look for somewhere to put it. Sort of yeah. <laughs> I've seen movies like that. Hang on. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it all happens in Vegas, I can tell you. <laughs> it yeah. sounds like it. Okay, so you uh, you came back to Australia, and it uh, looks like here uh, from uh, you know two thousand two thousand and one, you sort of hit the lecture circuit. Oh, I've always been into public speaking. Um, I was thrown into it when I got the helicopter license in '65, and my first speech was at the uh, Navigators Guild in town. Nancy Liebold was the president, okay. and so that was my first speech, and I actually enjoyed it so much. I just sort of. I said to yes to most people who would ask me to speak. So I, in the States, I did get into the professional speaking circuit, um, which you do over there. And especially if you've got a book to sell, you get out there and speak and sell a whole lot of books. I think that segues quite nicely to the book that you're about to launch yourself now. Yes. Well, I found I dropped out of school at the age of 15. My, I'd won a five-year scholarship at PLC Armadale, but my parents didn't believe that girls should be educated. So I was going to go on and be a veterinary surgeon, but I didn't have the education. So it was a chip on my shoulder for my entire life. I always say, well, my parents didn't believe that uh, they took me out of school and didn't believe I should be educated. And so I married and married and married and became educated. <laughs> school of hard knocks as they say yes it was the school of hard knocks 
definitely. But I then found in uh, 2002 that I could get to university and I could get credit points for a Bachelor of Aviation degree by putting forward my experience, which was chief pilot of my own air charter company and things like that. So uh, I whipped through the university course, the degree in 18 months. I just loved being at uni and I'm still in touch with the uni students. But the interesting thing was a week after I graduated, I was invited to be a lecturer in aviation history. And so at the age of 70, not only am I a graduate, but I'm a university lecturer. I can hardly spell the word. (laughs) (laughs) You're in the ivory tower now. Oh, I tell you, my first introduction to those modern lecture theatres, all those tiered seats full of 19-year-olds, and you know, with little epaulets on their, their shoulders thinking <laughs> that they're God's gift. And, um, <laughs> and so I introduced myself by name and a hand shot up at the top seat in the lecture theatre. And I'll never forget his name. His name was Rice Jones. And he said, oh, I just want to ask a question. Are you really the Australia's first woman helicopter pilot? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't have planted him if it had been better. <laughs> and, and, of course, the, the rest of them were gobsmacked. I wasn't the little old lady standing down the front going to teach some history at all. I, I actually had a little bit of a background. <laughs> you were in it. <laughs> I was, yes. I was. <laughs> so they, they still... Um, I'm still in touch with the uni students. As a matter of fact, they're coming to my book launch. Oh, cool. Yes. Yeah, they used to invite me out on all their social activities. You know, it was quite funny. Well, that would have been interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I remember some of my uni social activities. Yeah. (laughs) How much beer can you drink and still stand? (laughs) Oh, I can match them. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) <laughs> an interesting thing, Rosemary, when you, you, you're looking at these uh, groups of student pilots now, are you noticing an increase in the number of young women that are looking at aviation? How has that changed over the years? Yes, it has changed. And the interesting thing was at a speech I gave to a group, the young ones came up to me and one said in particular, I had no idea that you early pilots suffered prejudice. She said, I've always been brought up to believe that I would get a job as a, a captain on an airliner. She said, no doubts at all ever entered my head that that was my privilege. Yeah, quite different. Wow. Oh, my word. Yes. There's still a little bit of it around, I think. I I still think there's just a touch, but in my day, you didn't mention it. You didn't mention any prejudice at all because that would be making waves. And any woman that did a bit of a grizzle about it, you know, really got a bad name. So you just uh, had to grin and bear it. And it was very, very difficult. You know, I'm going to write my memoirs and uh, I say there's a couple of people yet to die before I can tell what's and all. (laughs) And I've got Google searches on all of them. Google watch those. This book's going to be a ripper. (laughs) Wait for that one. uh, It's going to be called Hovering Matilda. Oh, excellent. Always good to have the name picked out. Oh, yes, always have. I've got several books lined up to do. 
Well, I wonder if uh, I wonder if those young, the young women pilots that you're talking to these days actually realise that they've got people like yourself and Deborah Laurie really to thank for the easy ride that they've got these days. I'm, I'm hoping they will when they read this new book of mine because there was a lot of prejudice then. This new book's called First Females Above Australia and it covers a hundred bios of women who became firsts in their field in aviation. And it's when I was teaching history at University of Western Sydney, I realised there were very few research books and what was out there was erroneous. It's quite shocking when you do cross-referencing on stuff that uh, facts that are out there and believed to be the truth are not. So it's virtually stealing somebody's identity when you make a claim that you're a first at something and that somebody did it 20 years earlier. Uh, so I, I got riled about that. That's why I sort of put this book together and corrected the erroneous parts out there. So that nothing's been written like this before. There's no record at all of the history of women pilots. You'll get, uh, you know, Nancy Bird wrote her couple of books, and but that was about her and the history of her time. But there's nothing been written on the history of women pilots in Australia. So I've I've covered 100 in this first book and people are already saying to me, but you haven't mentioned so-and-so. So finally, at first I was saying, well, when you write your book, you can. <laughs> and, and then I thought to myself, I've got so much more material, I better start on the second book. So you know the phrase that people use first and foremost. Well, my first book is called First Females Above Australia, but the next book is Foremost Female Flyers uh, nice. Australian Skies. Yeah. For, for, I only made up the title <laughs> yesterday, not know how to say it. <laughs> foremost, fl, foremost Females Flying Above Australia. Anyway, okay. so, so this book... So how, is, how long till that one's out? Oh, it won't be long because I've sort of got so much of the material. Okay, well, that's handy. Um, I would say within the year. But meanwhile, the, the other one's ready to go. You've got prints done and things like it's, that? It's no, I haven't got the book in my hand yet. I've been in touch with a printer today and the printers, the press is rolling. But I want to get it into school libraries. That's my main, that's what I've kept the, that's the main aim of the book so that it's there for students and for researchers uh, because this is very, very, factual it's been so heavily cross-referenced and uh, it's there for the researchers and the school kids to know you know that there was life before <laughs> <laughs> what is, do people for instance the fascination with you being a woman and being australia's first helicopter pilot and this sort of stuff do you find that a lot of women's groups chase you to do public speaking inspirational speaking stuff like that i mean in the states for instance there's a, a big group called girls with wings that's very yes. active in that, uh, that i've just been in touch with them fairly recently. They're a great bunch. I, they weren't operating when I was living there. I lived there for 15 years and I did a lot of speaking, but not necessarily to aviation groups. Uh, but I was a motivational, inspirational speaker. I do do a lot with school kids. I wrote a book previously that CASA picked up and put out a glossy version of it called Think Aviation. I compiled that book, It's Careers on Aviation. It's a free booklet, so anyone wants one of those 
those, I've got stacks of them as well that I continue to distribute. School children and uh, older children are the ones that, you know, I prefer to talk to because it can really inspire them to sort of set their goals and I do a lot with them with time management, how to set your goals and, and work towards it. And I use Andy Thomas as my role model because at the age of 10, Andy said to his mother Elizabeth, I want to be an astronaut. And she was probably washing up in the kitchen sink and said, oh, yes, Andy. And, of course, on he went and became the first Australian-born astronaut. And I've met him several times and we correspond. He's an incredible person. But he set his goal and the way he got into NASA was that he read other people's resumes, CVs, and decided he had to match them or be better than that. Now, that's the way you get anywhere. It's an, been an old saying way back in the 60s of the DCA examiners when they did a flight test with a girl and the girl pilot said, well, did I pass? And on one occasion, he said, no, you're as good as the blokes, but you've got to be better. Yeah. And that's the, the chip that we've had on our shoulders all these years. You've got to be better than the guys. Otherwise, you just don't make the grade. You've got to keep your record clean and really be dedicated. I think that's one of the uh, the, the good things about sort of the new media scene now. There's a lot of uh, role models out there for, for young women who are looking at flying. You've got people like Amy Lobota, for instance, uh, Deborah Laurie and, and people like that, and Women in Aviation International, another really great uh, advocate for that sort of stuff. And and I guess it's really important for young women to keep positive by following people like that and uh, just making sure that they're focused on what they need to do rather than supposedly silly things like trying to be better than the guys. I mean, really, if you've got that yeah. sort of skill, it really doesn't matter. You've just got to keep or your education. You've got to keep it up and keep doing extra training. You've just got to keep your standard high. You know, I've mentored uh, pilots all my life. And uh, one I mentored as a 19-year-old, then became a member of parliament, Dana Vale. And uh, I introduced her to her husband, Bob Vale, who was a lamey friend of mine, and she was one of seven children and had dropped out of school at the age of 14. And she took about 15 years to get her education. She put herself through as a solicitor and became a member of parliament almost by default. She stood for something she believed in and suddenly there was a swing in the CDUs, 5% against Labor or something, and she got in. And she's been in Parliament 10 years and only just uh, resigned recently. So, uh, you know, I've mentored a lot. and She's a real prime, <laughs> top of my list. Though. She really worked hard to get where she got. Yeah, it's the hard work that pays off eventually, mm. if, if you focus it right. <laughs> mm. It's got all to do with goal setting and time management. You know, I had four young children under six, so and I took up flying. It's just all a matter of getting your priorities right. I think Grant, Grant and I ought to hire you, Rosemary, and you can come down here and mentor us. <laughs> <laughs> I love working as a nanny, actually. I used to really enjoy doing that job. Yeah, I've worked nice. in many fields, and I think nannying was, and university lecturing, I think I was doing both jobs at the same time, if I recall. <laughs> <laughs> or you can be in some lecture theatres. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, but Steve, it sounds like we're too late, so maybe maybe Rosemary can mentor uh, Nico and, um, yeah, and Chris. Sounds- Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've still got quite a few on my list. I tell you, my emails run hot. You know, what can I do now? You know, oh, you know, can you help me get a job? You know, 
Oh, one thing that I'm excited about, uh, I mean, two of the people I've always wanted to meet in my life, one was Andy Thomas, which I did, and um, MacArthur Job, you know, the great safety writer in aviation. Yeah, he does great stuff. Oh, gee, I've got his books. They're just almost threadbare with wear, and I'm meeting him next week for the first time, so I'm terribly excited about that. Oh, cool. (laughs) Rosemary, uh, time's running a little bit short for us now, but uh, we can't can't finish this off without talking about... uh, the chapel in the sky, helicopter Oh, weddings. yes. I, that was when I lived in Vegas, Las Vegas, Nevada. I dreamed that up. I thought there's 40 something wedding chapels on the strip, but <laughs> yes. nobody's put a chapel in the sky. <laughs> and I tried to get a helicopter and put it in the sky over there. And at 20 years later, I started it over Sydney Harbour. But I'm not allowed to own a helicopter as such or have an interest in a helicopter company. It's that's a conflict of interest. The oh, okay. appointment as a marriage celebrant is from the Attorney General. It's a legal appointment and uh, they have tough restrictions on it. So I couldn't even own a florist shop or a catering Oh, service. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the, all the so uh, I can't, and all that, yeah. Yeah, I can't have an interest in a, in a helicopter company. But the, it's not a roaring success as far as numbers, but everybody that goes on it, uh, including my new husband, we got married over over Sydney Harbour and everybody just thinks it's the most marvellous thing you could possibly do because you get a 30-minute scenic flight around Sydney over the harbour as well as getting married up there. And as I go over the Harbour Bridge, I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that I go back. I live in Melbourne, but I go back to Sydney to do helicopter weddings. And how many times a year would you get up there for that sort of thing? Oh, not as often as I would like, but uh, I do go now and again. Well, we'll have to pop a link to that on our website, uh, Grant, and uh, you know, yeah, definitely. people can, uh, can check that out. Yeah, mostly it's you uh, people coming from overseas who just come to Australia for a weekend to get married. Well, it's like some Aussies go to Vegas to get married. Well, that's right. And yeah. at Vegas you can get divorced in six weeks, even if you're in Australia. Well, the two websites that we've been looking at here where we've been having this interview is, uh, of course, helicopterweddings.com.au and uh, also people can find some really great information about you, Rosemary, at uh, centennialofwomenpilots.com. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, Actually, I've got several websites. One's Chapel in the Sky, but the other, an interesting one, is uh, World's Longest Blind Date. Uh, Okay. Longest Blind Date. Yeah. I met my husband on the world's longest blind date, which was 18 days flying across Australia and back. That's that's intense. (laughs) (laughs) That's another book. (laughs) Sounds like it. (laughs) Yeah. We'll pop links to those websites in our show notes for this episode. Rosemary, it's been really fun talking to you. I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show. Okay, thanks again for the great interview you did with my friend Debbie Laurie. Uh, Anyone who hasn't heard it, they ought to tune in. I sent some emails off today and said, check out episode 35. Oh, thanks so much. Cool, thanks. Best of luck with the book launch, All right. and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. It's been very interesting. Pilots.
Prepare, refresh and renew at Flight City. Whatever stage of your career, Flight City makes upkeeping and enhancing your skills easy and economical with their two state-of-the-art flight simulators. The fixed base simulator replicates a Boeing 777 and the full motion simulator can be a Seminole, King Air or Citation. Trust Flight City simulators and instructors to help you train for sim checks. Prepare to fly a bigger aircraft, renew your type rating, do the jet orientation training course and more. See flightcity.com.au or visit Flight City at Jandicott. G'day, I'm Michael. Hi, I'm Rosalind. And, and we're, we're from, from downwind.com.au, the website for aviation enthusiasts. Come and join a community of passionate aviators who'd love to share about their experiences and the joy of being in the air. On Downwind, you can participate in forum discussions, view great photos and videos, and keep up to date with a weekly newsletter. So come and join the community at downwind.com.au. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. Well, folks, we've been uh, talking about trying to get a lot of Kiwi content into the show lately, and we have done everything from uh, begging and pleading to uh, threatening to come over there and get some content. But uh, fortunately, one of our listeners in the uh, over there in the North Island is Dan Morris. Hello. Yes, I am in the lovely Manawatu. Good old balmy palmy. Yeah, I like to consider it the armpit of the nation. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to show my superior knowledge of uh, of New Zealand uh, geography. Obviously, I failed already. Well, what's <laughs> What's good fun is that uh, I used to live in Palmerston North. Spent the last five years of my life in New Zealand there, and here's Dan living in balmy palmy. Well, it is balmy. We've got a nice twenty one out there today. Ah, um, oh, cooking. Beautiful. That's cooking. We've got a light, uh, light southerly of about five knots, and uh, I should probably hang out my washing. But that's <laughs> nice. So uh, let me guess, when it hits 30, everyone's passing out with the heat again? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, we're yeah. going to underground bunkers and um, work on our moonshine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what happened last time I was there. Yeah, everyone, everyone, it hit 30 degrees and everyone was flaking out in the street. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> now, the last time Dan was on the show with us, he actually came on and uh, did some voice work for us uh, on the Airplane Geek show. I think it was episode one. Too, I think, wasn't it, guys? Oh, it was in right. the early yeah, we hundreds as yeah. we were supposedly on our way back from the US and getting uh, beached as bro. Yeah, mm. that was uh, that was hilarious. Probably about time we did another one of those uh, themed ones, Grant. I'll have to get you thinking about that. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll go have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, uh, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, your flying history. I think you're a flying instructor over there in uh, New Zealand. Is that correct? I am. I am uh, working for one of the larger flying schools in the area, um, a B cat instructor, B category. Um, it's equivalent to a grade two in Australia, but can do a little bit more than what a grade two can do. So I can be a, a chief flying instructor of a flying school. Um, I can do BFRs up to CPL level. Okay. Um, I can send students first solo. And the most annoying thing, I can sign off KDRs or knowledge deficiency reports. Um 
people get after they've sat an exam. But okay. uh, with the appropriate quantity and quality of alcohol, I can uh, I can be <laughs> jolted into um, signing more than my uh, more than I should. Uh, yes, the the <laughs> universal currency. Absolutely, yeah. W- w- willing to assess reports for beer. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, flying at a Palmerston North Airport, which is. Um, it's about a 1,900 meter runway. It's uh, serviced by a control tower. It's a Class D um, control zone. It's about about six instrument approaches, um, a couple of GPS approaches, and it's in terms of busyness. Um, last year, just under 60,000 movements. So it's uh, probably about six or seven in New Zealand in terms of um, aircraft movements. That's not too bad. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of aviation around the area. Um, just outside the control zone to the north is uh, Fielding, which is next to the town of Fielding. It's a privately owned uh, airstrip, and uh, there's a busy flying school there. That's actually where they rebuilt the Brendan Deer Spitfire, which is now based at Ohakia, which is another busy aerodrome about 13 nautical miles to the west. Um, Air Force Base, uh, that's all uh, restricted area, but they'll let you in if you talk nicely. Um, if you beg. Absolutely, yeah. I had to do an instrument renewal recently and had to do a couple of ILSs. Basically, they said, yep, if you're off the ground by 7 o'clock in the morning, you can have it between 7 and 7.30, which is when the Air Force is still asleep. Yeah, I was going to say, there's not as much activity at Ohakia anymore now that they don't have the uh, Skyhawks, right? No, but still, they're doing about probably 75, 80,000 movements a year, so they're feeling oh, okay. busy. Yeah. Well, they're through there. Uh, well, they've got the... PTS, a pilot training school there with oh, right. 15 or 16 CT4s. They've got another 42 squadron with uh, about half a dozen King Airs, all the Iroquois, and uh, still got the Sioux helicopters are based there, but they're um, awaiting the um, NH-90s, I think, coming yep. later this year, and Augusta 109s, which are going to replace the Sioux, so they're sort of up okay. in the equipment level. Yeah. So they've basically rationalised a lot of um, a lot of the uh, flying that used to go on at other Air Force uh, airstrips around New Zealand down to Ohakia, yeah? Yeah, basically all the primary training used to be down at uh, Wigram, and I think you've got yeah. some association with that, haven't you? Yeah, well, um, Dad's ex-New Zealand Air Force, so I was born in Auckland, yep. and um, yeah, he, he learned to fly in, in those areas. So, uh, yeah, the... I think they closed Wigram in 92 and they moved all the primary training to Ohakia and they were thinking of closing Fenuapai, which is up north of Auckland, which is where the uh, C-130s and Orions are based and the 757s. Yep. Okay. But it remained open, I think, mainly because the uh, incoming government at the time, which was national, the Prime Minister, his electorate included <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see that the Kiwi politics is just as good as the Aussie one, you know. Absolutely. Uh, who's coming in? Yeah, what's my electorate? Oh, I better keep that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we've got, we got fielding, big chunks of uncontrolled airspace up to the north we can go training in. Uh, then you've got uh, Ohakia, like I said, quite busy. Um, ILS is there if you're early enough to use them. Uh, and then a bit further south, you've got Fox Pine, which is another private um, airfield okay. near Foxton. And... It's quite an interesting airstrip, that one. It's surrounded by uh, pine, hence Fox Pine. Fox Pine, yeah. So it involves <laughs> coming in at about a 15 degree, actually I think it's 11 degrees off the centre line, crossing a row of uh, pine trees at about 300 feet, and then gently turning right to sort of get on the centre line by the time you flare. Wow. <laughs> and... Um, 
it's mainly Merkelites in there, but again, it's quite popular for the flying schools based in the area uh, to go in there. It can get quite interesting in a, in a westerly, and it's good for doing uh, practice force landings right down to the round to the deck. Um, yeah. And then through to the east, through the gorge, uh, Manitou Gorge. Also, I'll say it's one of the windiest uh, parts <laughs> of the country. It's a big um, funnel, isn't it? Yeah, if you'd seen my uh, tweets sort of the past month or so, um, yeah, I witnessed, um, I had 58 knots at uh, 1,500 feet just uh, leaving the Palmerston <laughs> control zone to the south. So uh, sort of get used to that and 50 knots in the circuit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> nice light wind day. Exactly, yeah. So <laughs> if, you, if you head east through, through the gorge, um, you've got a lot of uncontrolled airspace out there. Uh, closest uh, would be Danny Burke. There's a... There's yep. a a couple of grass airstrips there, and again, that's good for doing uh, practice force landings, precautionary landings, that kind of stuff. Yep. And we like like to take the students out there to um, experience uh, grass airstrips. Okay. And uh, yeah, so we've got quite a bit of um, uh, variety in the area. Oh, then we've got Wanganui, about 30 miles off to the northwest. Yep. Uh, again, it's uncontrolled. It's um, Eagle flying there with Beach 1900s. It's okay. popular for um, instrument training and it's it's sort of nice and close but it's far enough away to qualify as a as a navigation flight and it <laughs> gives the gives the kiddies um you know, something different to think about. Yeah. Do you, is there are there any strips down south that live in Paraparam way? Uh, well, there's Paraparam or Pram, as we like to call it. <laughs> Paraparumu, it's written. Yeah, I think it translates <laughs> to dirty oven, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, down there, it's, it's it can get insane down there. Helicopters doing right-hand circuits, aeroplanes doing left-hand circuits. Oh, wow. Um, so no overhead rejoins. Um, there was an accident a few years ago where a 152 hit a R22 Oops. Uh, in the overhead rejoin, and uh, it didn't turn out too well. So sort of since then, they've, they've refined the procedures. So, uh, yeah, but um, again, that's about 40 miles away, so fairly close. So, yeah, we've got quite a, quite a variety of airstrips uh, within an hour's flying distance. That's great. And it makes makes for good training, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how's the, how would you describe the state of the uh, general aviation and, uh, you know, uh, recreational aviation scene in New Zealand? It's uh, pretty healthy. How, how's it all going over there with it? It's, I'd say it's healthier from what I've seen um, or having worked in a uh, – when I was living in Auckland, I worked part-time for a, a flying club. That was ticking over not, not badly, um, picking up as the economy picks up. But definitely not uh, not anywhere near the glory days of people have told me of the of the 70s and 80s where you know aero clubs were just going insane and people were learning to fly buying aeroplanes etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's pretty similar with the way things are here. I mean, you, you often hear a lot of pilots that have been around and started their flying in the 70s and 80s over here talking in exactly the same terms about the way it was back then by comparison to the way it is now. And I think that probably the the big factor there, of course, is cost. It's just so expensive now. It is, yeah. Um, you, you'd be lucky if if you could find a, a 172 for under two hundred dollars an hour to hire over here, which probably on an exchange rate basis isn't too bad. What what is that <laughs> exchange rate? Let's. let's uh, I think okay. to the Aussie, it's about 70, 76 cents at the moment. It's not too bad. Um, you know, there's there's landing charges pretty much everywhere you go. It could just be uh, an honesty box at like uh, Taramanui, which is sort of halfway between here and New Plymouth. Yeah. Uh, you know, just put five dollars in the envelope and put it in the honesty box next to the Aero Club. Or at the other extreme, you've got if you want to land at Auckland International, <laughs> uh, fifty dollars. Oh, that's not bad. It's it's okay considering um, cheaper than here. You know, yeah, exactly. The size of the of the aerodrome and, and what's involved. Yeah, there. That's, a, that's a busy airport there, and they're letting you in for fifty. That's pretty good. Uh, 
it's pretty good, yeah. Um, and then you've got associated sort of navigation charges. You get charged every, t- you know, the moment you talk to ATC, you get charged. Um, Do you find that makes people run silent? Because, well, I mean, we, we, we feel that um, attitudes like that is a good way to uh, introduce taxation to the detriment of all, and particularly yeah. with regard to safety. I mean, uh, you know, if you're bringing in all these um, air navigation charges and, and charging you to talk to air traffic controllers, you know, the very people that your taxes are already paying to employ, people can be tempted to say, well, I'm not going to go for that. And, you know, they can go up, you know, no sir, no brains, and, you know, nobody might know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> there is that. There's, um, we've still got a, a flight information service, um, cross-search information. You can talk to them, get weather, file a flight plan. It's about $6.50 for a VFR flight plan, uh, filed through the internet. A lot of people, a lot of the flying schools these days are using spider tracks uh, to do their yeah. own flight following. And that's a local company. Yeah, Owen Zup was using that when he flew around Australia. It's pretty good. It's very good. You, you can you can look up where your where your kitties are and and <laughs> where they should be and uh, why they did you know why they got down to that low altitude etc cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> so about that two hundred foot flyby. <laughs> but uh, a lot of people are going for that, and of course there's some sort of competitors as well to spider tracks. But yeah. I think ideally Airways, which is the provider, state owned enterprise, provides um, air traffic services for New Zealand. Um, I think they'd ideally like to get out of VFR altogether. And, Do you have the equivalent um, of RA over there, recreational aviation? Like, Yeah, there's sort of an LSA. Well, there's a recreational pilot's license, which you can get based on yeah. a medical for a, uh, a, a car license. Yeah, like over um, here. Drive a car, yeah. And get your RA. Yeah, there is quite a quite a, a, a big microlite thing, and they they're self-regulated. Okay, yeah. Um, but again, the you know what a microlite is now compared with twenty years ago is is a completely different thing. You know, you look <laughs> yeah. at a, a, a Technam with retractable undercarriage and a, and a CSU, and it's a microlite. <laughs> hey, wait a minute, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's and that's... vice versa, they can they can uh, certify it as a um as an aircraft as well. Yeah. With so all there's of a lot of lot, lot of that going on. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Now you mentioned the with the air traffic control and all that. My understanding is that, like here in Australia, where we've got air traffic control for regions and so on, centralised in two main control centres in Melbourne and Brisbane. My understanding is that everything in New Zealand's run out of Christchurch. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's probably early two thousands. I think they consolidated all of New Zealand's air traffic control, all the radar stuff in Christchurch. Previously, they had a centre here at Ohakia where they'd look after pretty much the central part of New Zealand. But then it was decided that they'd centralise that in Christchurch. And that was, yeah, running quite nicely. And uh, I think recently with the uh, big earthquake they had in Christchurch, yeah. I think they've started to scratch their heads and <laughs> well, is, 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 that, is that really a good idea? Having yeah, all it all in one place. All your eggs in one basket when that basket's situated on a very shaky island. Because New Zealand's exactly. earthquakes. Exactly. And, uh, you know, after the earthquake um, for about, uh, you know, three or four weeks, there was a, a, a no-term out saying, you know, um, be prepared for TIBA procedures if we have an aftershock greater than five or something. Yeah, well, they yes. have. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, you know, you'd be listening to the radio, Ohaki Control, and then, um, you know, you'd, you'd hear them saying, uh, yeah, guys, you might want to sort of be ready to divert somewhere else or something. Yeah. We, just had an, we just had an aftershock, so. Yeah. Yeah, because it was only just a, a few weeks ago they had another big one. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of them. Um, there's, there's been, you know, fives, uh, which are pretty significant. And the fact oh, that yeah. 
quite shallow as well, nine, ten kilometres. Yeah, it's it's just underneath the surface, so it's giving everything a lot of a kick, which is the it's when that it's when the ground get, turns into a wave and goes liquid and everything just gets ripped out. I mean, I, I lived in Napier and um, on a piece of land that had been raised in one of the six point two earthquakes, the big Napier one, and uh, we had a five point two or something like that, and. Uh, yeah, my thought, even as a as a young kid, was, hey, I wonder if we're going to go back under. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you look at New Zealand, and it essentially is um, a fault line. Oh, yeah. Southern Alps running right up the middle of the country, and then uh, the South Island, then the North Island. You've got the, the Tararuas, uh, which sort of run up to the Manitou Gorge, and then you get the Rohinis. And again, that's all tectonic in, in nature. You've got the Central Plateau with Ruapehu and Narahui, the, the volcanoes. Yeah, Tongariro um, and Lake Taupo used to be a exactly. volcano until it blew. Yeah, you get all that... Um, uh, geothermal stuff up there with the the the, the, yep. the mud ponds up around Rotorua, yep. uh, White Island. So I mean, you know, it's bound to happen sooner or later, and it did. Uh, <laughs> lucky yeah. it happened when it happened, and and it happened where it happened. Yeah, yeah, where everyone's you know, like ready for it and built for it, and absolutely because yeah, I mean, yeah, Christ, Christchurch is my hometown. Um, actually started flying. I actually first sold it there at Christchurch International uh, back in 1997. That was in a. Um, Cherokee 140 on the uh, grass airstrip they've got right next to the main three-kilometer runway. They've got five <laughs> meter grass grass strip there for the Aero Club. <laughs> Caution, prop wash. <laughs> Wait. Oh, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so then, uh, of course, we're always talking about uh, different issues and things that are in the news and pe- things that are concerning people here in uh, in all facets of aviation. What are some of the uh, you know the big issues that are going on in uh, in aviation in New Zealand at the moment? What are some of the big talking points? Well, in terms of aviation wise, it's been pretty quiet. Of course, you know you get all the airline news. You know, New Zealand waiting their seven eight sevens, and they've got some triple seven three hundreds arriving. In terms of sort of hiring, it's it's been very quiet for the past few years. You've got about uh, thirty or forty pilots in the various uh, link airlines like Mount Cook Airlines with the ATRs or Air Nelson with the Q300s waiting on yes, well sitting on yes letters from Air New Zealand waiting for the call. So in terms of hiring it's been pretty slow sort of Air New Zealand but of course you've got, you've got Grant's favourite um, Jetstar expanding <laughs> rapidly, a lot of people moving into that of course with their yeah. cadetship. Um, I've got a few friends who are in the UK at the moment starting their um, A320 rating. You've got uh, sort of in terms of Airways, um, you've got the Airways Corp who are removing uh, the NDBs. Uh, there'll be probably one or two NDBs left by the end of next year, which is great. They're horrible things. <laughs> so you've, uh, you've got uh, a lot of lot more GPS approaches being set up. There's a there's uh, a, a pretty good warbird movement going on over there, isn't there? Oh, there is. There is. Um, sort of in, in Blenheim uh, and uh, Masterton, you've got the Vintage Aviator, which is, I believe, sort of backed by uh, Peter Jackson. Yeah. Replicas of World War One aircraft, um, right down to the sort of the engine as well, and I believe they export a lot of the aircraft as well. Uh, they put on a show a couple of times a year, and then you've got um, Warbirds over Marlborough, which yep. is going to be taking place at Omarker, which is a, a, a grass, well, a big GA airfield outside of. That's Blenheim, that's a really big World War One flight flying, isn't it? It is World War One and also World War Two. They're talking about a um, a mosquito. Uh, and Avro Anson, uh, yep. Wolf 190, nice. uh, various yaks and spitfires, etc. So that'll be a good show. That goes every other year, so it sort of swaps with Warbirds over Wanaka. Well, that's that's a big one that a lot of people around the world know, the Warbirds over Wanaka. So it's good to see that they're alternating, you know, they one on this, uh, this Easter and then they swap. And so it's every two years. It gives the organisers time to have a breather. It does, it does. And they can sort of practice for the next year as well. Yeah, 
then they can uh, go and hang out and be and be and be visitors at another one <laughs> every absolutely. other year. Yeah, no, that's yeah. good. What, one other thing about the Kiwi register that's of interest is my understanding is it's got lots of helicopters. Like you seem to have almost the highest number of, of commercial civil helicopters per head of population than anywhere in the world. Yeah, um, certainly do. There's a, um, a lot of deer recovery goes on in the South Island, not as much as it used to sort of in the, in the um, sort of the heydays of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, that's when they were hunting them rather than going out and bagging them to breed them. Absolutely. So you had had you know helicopters, um, but you know those days like the Hiller H12s, yep. I think they are, and, and all that being flown well overweight. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, dozens of deer carcasses hanging you know, sort of you know off the skids. You've got mainly sort of tourism for the helicopters. I haven't had much to do with helicopters. Um, Except avoiding them a, in the pattern. Yeah, yeah I've, I've taken a ride in a, in a Robbie uh, around the Marble Sounds a couple of times, oh, cool. which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Yep. The thing that got me is that I could see my feet. <laughs> yes, yes. And, yeah. and, through your, and beyond your feet, you could see nothing. So uh, that's why I don't like helicopters, because I don't like to see my feet. No. <laughs> far, too mo- far too many moving parts, and a smart man once told me, you never fly anything where the wing it goes faster than the forward speed of the aircraft. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the whole thing hangs in the air by one nut, yes. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And we tend to call, heli- well, I tend to call helicopter pilots in New Zealand temporary New Zealanders. Ah, that's what we call motorbike drivers <laughs> oh, over here, that, temporary Australians. Yeah, that'll get a bit absolutely. of hate mail. That'll get a bit of hate mail. Yeah. Yeah. And remember, that was Dan Morris from Palmerston North, folks. That wasn't <laughs> Steve or Grant. We'll, we'll be yeah, handing so out Dan's email address at the end of the show anyway. <laughs> and I'll just uh, finish off by saying some of my best friends are helicopter pilots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, 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 but, that, uh, that goes partially towards uh, forgiving you, right? <laughs> those those would be the best friends that you now owe a whole lot more beers to, right? Yeah. Well, I'm expecting a severed horse head in the middle. <laughs> day now. Yeah. Excellent. So, given now we've just we've found out a little bit about you already. Uh, obviously, uh, born and bred Kiwi, uh, born and raised in Christchurch. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Um, Learned to fly in '97. Yeah, high oh, school sorry. in Christchurch. Um, then, sort of after I left school, I started flying sort of once a week. Then, sort of ran out of money, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> yeah. So the beginning of my logbooks, um, you know, a couple of entries for 97, uh, 94, a couple for 97, where I finally, finally uh, soloed. But in between that, 96, I lived in uh, Australia, I lived in Melbourne, worked over there for a year, cool. got bored. I thought, oh, I'll go back. Did a bit more flying. 98, I decided I want to get a degree. So I went to University of Canterbury, enrolled in engineering, did an engineering intermediate, failed chemistry, thought, Okay, I'll do physics. So I ended up with a physics degree. Cool. Which was uh, great fun. And sort of in the back of my mind, it was like a a backup plan as well, just in case. Uh, Because I'm blind as a bat, uh, quite short-sighted. And I thought, well, if I don't get a a medical, then I've got, you know, some other string to my bow. And then uh, 2002, I decided to get serious about flying again and enrolled in the commercial pilots course at Nelson Aviation College in Motueka. And for those of you who don't know, that's in the nicest part of uh, New Zealand, as far as I'm concerned, Um, across from Nelson. Uh, Nelson, which is actually further north than Wellington is. I bet you didn't know that. Interesting, because it's in the South Island. Exactly, yeah. So if you want to fly from Nelson to Wellington, you pretty much fly a heading of uh, about 085, and then it'll take you to um, Wellington. Interesting. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, um, Machuaca is quite a a busy uh, little airstrip there. It's uh, about 700 metres long. Uh, There's a sealed strip about eight metres wide and a grass strip next to it. And... um, 
yeah, proceeded through the, the PPL, finishing off that uh, CPL uh, instrument rating, multi-instrument rating, which was done in a, um, a crusty old Seneca 2. And then the CCAT instructor rating, which uh, C category, which is equivalent to a grade three in Australia. Yep. And did a little bit of work there. And it was a slow part. Or oh, you know, the industry was uh, in a bit of a slowdown then. So there were no instructing jobs going. Um, so we ended up, actually ended up getting a job uh, for a company called Airwork in Auckland. And they wanted uh, operations controllers. So I thought, oh, yep, we'll apply for that. And uh, got the job and uh, ended up driving a desk for three and a half, four years. Um, quite exciting at the start. Um, they had won a contract to operate a 737-300 for Palau, Micronesia okay. Airlines. So cool. my duties included ETOPS flight watch, uh, flight planning, and uh, which went along with all the sort of the rostering. A little bit frustrating yeah. though, you know, watching, sitting and, and not being able to partake. Absolutely, yeah. So um, also Airwork were operating or still do operate a freight fleet for New Zealand Post. Okay. So there's a 737-200-QC. Uh, wow, are they still going? Yeah, one left. It operates pretty much between Auckland and Christchurch twice a night during the week and is available for charters. So, I mean, they can turn it into a 113-seat airliner uh, in 20 yeah. minutes. So um, it, must, it must have a good hush kit if they're doing night ops. Straight through hush kit, yeah, but Christchurch and Auckland don't have any um, noise uh, curfews because they're far mm-hmm. enough out from the city to yep. uh, that not to be a problem. Okay. Uh, so uh, it's, yeah, along with that, we're also at that time when I started, and I think it was 2000, 2004, I think it was. Yeah. Um, another 737-300, an ex-ANSET one, which was, I think used to be VHCZA, okay. was the first one that ANSET got. Uh, they'd managed to buy that quite cheap because it was after the um, airline went belly up. Tango uniform? Uh, that's it, yeah. Tango <laughs> uniform, yeah. They managed to get that for quite a good deal and uh, got a contract to operate it for Air Venomatu. So um, okay. out of uh, Vila into Australia, into yep. New Zealand, etc. So again, there was uh, flight watch and ETOPS and flight planning for that as well. Uh, good thing about the job is that I've made quite a lot of contacts. Uh, hasn't paid off yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're the ones that pay off like just after you retire, right? <laughs> yeah. Got to see what ash, what an airline actually runs like, what's behind it. You know, there's quite a lot that goes on behind the scenes uh, in an airline. I mean, Airwork was quite small, so I can only imagine the likes of, uh, you know, New Zealand or Qantas <laughs> operations is like. And also got to jump seat around the country for free at oh dark o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I got to ride in Metroliners, uh, Fokker Friendships. It's always great fun. Yeah, don't you love yeah. the way they just fill up with Avtur when they fire over those Dart uh, turboprops? Beautiful. Um, and also the, 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 the hissing of the pneumatics uh, for the noseable steering and the yep. brake, which um, you know gave me a bit of a scare the first time I jump-seated. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was that was good fun, and um, sort of late 2007, an opportunity came up to um, fly full time. Oh, at the same yeah, at the time I was instructing part time as well for a, a small flying club out at Ardmore, which okay. is a busy, the busiest uh, F airstrip in New Zealand, airfield in New Zealand, uh, uncontrolled. So there's uh, flying 152s and 172s, 182s um, on the weekend, and while I was there, I got to have a, a fly of. The prototype CT4, okay. which um, belongs to a Warbird syndicate, so that was uh, good fun. Um, well, that would be your uh, avatar photo, would it? No, that's actually me in a Percival Provost. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which um, I managed to get a, um, a flight out of one of the uh, Airwork pilots, did a lot of flying, or does a lot of flying yeah. for the uh, World War One fleet out of Masterton, 
and he owed me a favour, and it was returned <laughs> as 1.5 hours jewel in a Pressful Provost. Nice. Which was uh, amazing, a big um, 550 horse radial up the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, they were sort of a bit like a windshield in a way. Yeah, yeah. Got the heritage there, but they're, they're very similar. And, of course, they went on to become the Jet Provost and the Stripe Master, which um, the Aaron ZDF operated for yep. a while as well. So, yep. um, yeah, I've had okay. a few... Fun aircraft experiences. Cool. About how many hours have you got, mate? I've got 1,800 hours, just under, about 1,300 instructing. <laughs> how many grey hairs? <laughs> uh, no, I'm going bald. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to hide them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I've done a lot of instructing. I'm teaching um, IFR now as well in the uh, G1000, flying DA40s, which are cool. um, very nice, slippery plastic aeroplane. But prior to that, it was uh, Cherokees. I've got about 800 hours instructing on Cherokees and about 600 on 152s and then various other aeroplanes, 172s, uh, air tourers, and then uh, the multi-time I've got in Senecas and Duchess. Excellent. Excellent. The only twin time I have is flying a beach Duchess. Fun times. Oh, beautiful plane. Yeah. Real simple. Real simple. Counter-rotating props. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody, every every twin-engine pilot's friend I saw. <laughs> or at least it was for me. Oh, I, I, I always thought my favourite twin to, if I was going to get a twin rating, it would be a, not a real twin rating, it would be a Cessna 337. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a twin without a twin. Hey. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Dan, well, uh, it's been great having you on the show. Now, um, let's have a talk quickly about your, um, your website here. You've got a blog running on and uh, it's uh, aviatecoffee.wordpress.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a bit of a, a coffee whore, you could say. Um, coffee enthusiast. I like to combine the two if I can. Um, and luckily at um, a lot of the airports around New Zealand, they've sort of upped their game and there's really good coffee available. Well, if they've heard that you're in for coffee and they want to get you around, huh? Yeah, exactly. So uh, I mean, recently I was in uh, Blenheim at Woodburn and discovered that their old uh, crappy sort of cafe has been replaced by a flash uh, cafe. It's called CPR Air Shop. Uh, CPR is the local coffee roaster down there. Okay. Uh, coffee, coffee Premium Roast, it stands for. Ah. So I was, I was, able to I was get a, it's cardiopulmonary resuscitation, but that's just me. Uh, no, palpitations after the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, I've, I've mentioned probably on the um, downwind forum a couple of times about the good spots to get coffee in New Zealand. Yes. Yes, saw them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, that blog of mine, I don't sort of give it enough attention as I should, but from time to time I'll update it with um, pictures and, and, and various other thoughts cool. one gets from the right-hand seat when people are trying to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as someone who's tried to kill a few instructors, hey, I can appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. All right, Dan, well, tell us where people can find you on Twitter. I am the Grand Vizier. Don't ask me where I got that from. Oh, come on, it's obvious. Pink Floyd. That's the one. There we go. Good you're, stuff. You're, you're, you're an old school Pink Floyd fan. I know that much. I am. I am. I've got um, I've got all their back catalogue. Yeah. Uh, their stuff just fantastic. So yeah. that was the Grand Vizio's Garden Party, part one, two, and three. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, so that's where I got that from. And you can probably find me floating around Facebook and uh, where else? I think my transponder, but I haven't been there in a very long time. It seems yeah. to be a bit more North American oriented than, um, than I'd like. And also I turn up on Prune occasionally, but under a very different um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, you, you need good aliases to survive on prune. Uh, you do, especially in New Zealand where it's two degrees of separation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, folks, um, we're, we're actually not going to let Dan off the hook here. He's actually uh, agreed to uh, come and provide us with some Kiwi news on a semi-regular basis in a segment that we're uh, tentatively thinking of calling Across the Ditch or Across the Dutch, depending on which side of the ditch you live on. So uh, if you've got any questions about uh, aviation in New Zealand, and we're really keen to, uh, we, you know, we keep banging on about this, Grant, but we really want to make this a show about Australia and New Zealand aviation. Yep. So if you have some questions uh, that you'd like to send Dan about uh, things that are happening over in Kiwi, Land, just uh, shoot that over to uh, plane crazy down under at gmail.com and we'll pass those on to Dan and uh, we'll hopefully he can uh, get some answers for you. And uh, all criticism will be ignored. Um. <laughs> uh, spot the instructor. <laughs> oh, you'll fit well, you'll fit in well with us, mate. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. All right, excellent. Yep, so, um, yeah, if anyone's got any ideas or wants to sort of help out, um, give me a bell, send me a shout. I've got a couple of people lined up who are keen. Who knows, it may turn into a standalone podcast as well. Excellent. Hey. Excellent. Did you oh, hear that, Airplane Geeks? Did you hear that, Max Flight? The airplane geeks could be becoming grandparents because the you know, uh, airplane. Who? I can't imagine Dan Webb being a grandparent at this stage. Dan Webb. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Webb. Never heard of him. Anyway. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> All right, Dan, well, we really appreciate you coming on the show, mate, and we'll look forward to you, uh, to your first segment. That's probably an episode or two away. And um, uh, like I say, folks, um, feel free to send us any questions. Uh, if you've got anything you ever wanted to know about aviation in New Zealand, well, uh, if Dan doesn't know, he can certainly make up something that'll sound fantastic. You read my mind. Absolutely. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much, Dan. We'll talk to you soon. No worries. See you later. Cheers, Dan. Welcome to your flight experience. You're strapped into the pilot seat of a 737 flight simulator. You advance throttles and power down the runway. Clear for the visual. You're up and away. Flight experience is exhilarating, unique and a whole lot of fun. It's the ultimate gift. So strap in someone you love with a gift voucher today. Your destination, one of 20,000 airports around the world. Call 1-800-737-800 or visit flightexperience.com.au. Flight Experience, the ultimate flying experience. Want to advertise your business on the Plane Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plane Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plane Crazy Down Under website. Buongiorno, I am the Benulli from JuniorFlyer.com. Before Stephen Grant from Plane Crazy Down Under came along, I was numero uno aviation chick magnet. No, the chickies only have eyes for them. Enjoy your time in the sun, boys. This and other great shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Controller's Corner with Ben Ippolito. G'day and welcome to the PCDU Northwest Melbourne Recording Studio for another edition of the Controller's Corner. Continuing on from our last segment, we'll continue to uh, go through some questions that have been submitted to us by the listeners. And we'll lead off uh, this time with some questions about communications 
And Turb wanted to know if I'd been witness to some of the funnier moments that occur on the air. We do get our good one-liners from time to time. Some have nearly left us in stitches. Pilots can rest assured if they've come up with a witty one-liner, it most likely resides in a special little book that sits on top of every group's set of consoles known as the quote book. Most groups have a quote book just to let everybody else know of these witty one-liners that come out from time to time from people trying to cancel Sarwash to people asking if an approach would be okay with Hobart Flow, which doesn't exist, and other such one-liners. Like one I had yesterday, where in response to saying a star currency was available, I had the response of, grow ahead. That's right. Not go, grow. That brings up a particularly important part of the air traffic controller's job, which is what we call the hearback and readback process. If you've ever been picked on by a controller asking to read back something that you've already read back twice, it's because we're looking for a particular set of words to be used. It may sound like we're being pedantic, but we're not. We're just making sure that the message was received loud and clear. Not only is it important for the controllers, it's also important for the pilots. If we say something you don't understand, ask us to say it again. We'd much rather say it three times than you do the wrong thing unintentionally. Also got a question asking if uh, sitting on the HF console was the short straw of air traffic control. Actually, that's a misconception in itself. HF operators aren't actually air traffic controllers. They're part of the OSFIC operation, information centre which is in Brisbane, and all our HF communications are done by the HF operators up in Brisbane. And thankfully, we don't have to spend our days listening to HF, the wonderful medium that it is. And no turb. I don't know of any plans to use the bingo number system instead of the group number system in calling flight numbers over the airwaves. So I don't think you'll be hearing legs 11 on the air anytime soon. And the last set of questions are all about our traffic loads and how we handle the traffic. One question was in relation to the effects of the global financial crisis. I must admit we did have a quiet period at the end of the year, which was much quieter than uh, the usual holiday period from all accounts, although it was only it's my first summer, so I haven't had any previous summers to base that on, but that's uh, just what I heard from the other controllers in the area. However, from a uh, traffic perspective, the GFC is well and truly over in our sector. Some days we're split more often than uh, we are usually during the so-called busy periods, which means we're busier for longer than we have been before. Referring to Bushington as we were in the last segment, you may recall the controller who had the incident in the car park talking about having lots of sky, otherwise known as the big sky theory. Become an air traffic controller, folks. You'll see how well the big sky theory doesn't really work. I've had occasion to have an A380, that's the super jumbo, fly underneath a Hercules who was a thousand feet above them 
the only reason they couldn't have the same levels is because they're the only two aircraft I had at 24,000 feet. Those two were pretty much going to hit each other dead on. Unfortunately, 1,000 feet lower for the A380 until they were past the Hercules, and the Hercules got a very good view. And to the Hercules pilots who flew over the Singapore Airlines A380, if you're listening to this podcast and you have the photos, send them in to Stephen Grant. I would love to see them. The last three questions came from Turb and relate to our uh, handling of their tracking and profiles of the airliners in the modern green environment that we try to work in. Firstly, regarding the area of track shortening and getting everyone on their way as fast as possible. In essence, this is already part of the job of air traffic controllers. We don't hold you guys up on purpose. It's the old theory of we can only have one aeroplane in one piece of sky at one time. Otherwise, bad things tend to happen. We do try and get you guys on the way as fast as we can, which leads to the second question about do we actually have greener tracking profiles now that the environment is becoming such a big concern and the CO2 emissions and things like that. We do have new procedures now, things like RMP approaches, which is required navigation performance. This lets the aircraft a better descent profile, which leads it to nearly idle thrust all the way down from cruise to when the aircraft is established on final approach at the airport. Also allows aircraft to take off much heavier out of previously limiting airports. In places like Hobart and Canberra, where the departure profiles under the required navigation performance can be made to weave around the mountains and keep the aircraft on a clear flight profile. Then the old principle, which was pick the biggest valley and make the aircraft climb as hard as possible. And the last question about the air traffic controllers being aware of the performance limits of the aircraft and us not asking you guys to do near the impossible. I believe that's probably more of a two-edged sword in that we're aware of what the aircraft can do over time and the A380 pilots are probably finding at the moment that we're asking them to do things that they might not be able to do because we're just treating it like a big 747 because we're not quite used to what the aircraft can and can't do yet. It all comes down to experience in handling certain aircraft types. The other edge of that is that because aircraft are flying more economical profiles with most aircraft descending at 280 knots now as opposed to the old 300 knots when we ask you guys to slow up or speed up there's a little bit more leeway than there used to be and the last thing i want to cover is a question about is there much camaraderie amongst the air traffic controllers Absolutely. All the controllers are constantly looking out for each other, pointing things out. You can even find when you're getting snowed under that somebody else has got the attention of the aisle supervisor who's called in some backup and your partner is standing behind you ready to help out. That's all for this edition of the Controllers Corner. You can find me online either via Twitter at ATC underscore Ben or via email at atcben.pcdu at gmail.com. Unfortunately, all the shorter ones were taken. So that's Alpha Tango Charlie, Bravo Echo November, dot Papa Charlie Delta Uniform at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm ATC Ben, and I hope to see you in my sky. Mm. 
And thanks very much to Ben Ippolito for that wonderful segment. Gee whiz, I tell you what, he gets lots of questions. Actually, it's quite a popular segment on the forums, Grant. That's definitely the case. And uh, it's not just Turb throwing questions at him. He is getting them from a number of other people. And yeah, keep them running, folks. Just keep plowing those questions in and Ben will do his best to answer them. And yeah, we know we want to add more and more to his workload so that he, he realises just how much we love him. Well, that's right. Of course, uh, we recently had a tour of the air traffic control facility up there at uh, Melbourne Airport where Ben works. And so now we know he's got plenty of spare time on his hands when he's doing those late night shifts well you know he can be uh, recording bits and pieces for us while he's controlling those uh, those rather empty screens at night oh, I reckon well you know it's move that dot move that dot move that dot and record some yeah. PCDU then move that dot something like that yeah it works for me oh there you go so long as you're not one of the dots well that's right well I drive trains that way no hang on no that's not right at all no. <clears throat> ah. <laughs> never would I do that I'm not going there <laughs> No, but it's great stuff from Ben. Really appreciate it and uh, very educational. I, I do enjoy it a lot and look forward to the day when I get to apply more than just uh, being in the circuit or the training area. Yeah, well, uh, Grant, uh, of course, uh, you did uh, notice there that uh, Ben has set up his own email address. So uh, you can either, if you don't want to uh, hop on the forums and submit a question to him, and, you know, sometimes a little bit hit and miss with the forums or we don't we don't get across there every day. So you can send it direct. That's uh, pcdu at gmail.com. Or, of course, you can always send it to our usual email address which is playing crazy down under at gmail.com grant and speaking of that oh it's postman pat there he is the late night posty my god grant have a look at that posty he's got that's a big mailbag hey look out Struth. That's a wow, lot of mail. That's a lot. That's a lot of mail. Oh, hang on. Are some of those carved on tablets? Yeah, they look like it. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, oh, cool. I've been looking for an iPad. <laughs> Truth. Lots of listener mail here this week, folks. Oh, cool. And the first one comes from Braham, or Brahm. I really apologise there, mate. I, we couldn't actually work out how to pronounce your name properly, so I apologise in advance. But it's uh, from, uh, we'll say it's uh, Braham Sachs. And uh, he sends us an email that says, uh, Hi, guys. Love the podcast. He's only up to the Dick Smith episode. Uh, been running a little bit behind. Well, that's okay, mate. Uh, by the time you hear this, you'll have, uh, <laughs> your head will be full of uh, playing crazy down and You'll probably be sick of hearing from us. Oh, I, I think most people get sick of hearing from us within the second episode, don't they? Yeah, he says here, he got his... Uh, PPL back in the 1970s and did very little flying over the last 25 years or so, but he's uh, slowly getting back via RAOs down at Turidum, which is not far from where I live. Oh, awesome. And he's also starting at Moorabbin out there at Moorabbin Flying Services, which is uh, where I've been doing a bit of flying lately. So, well, yeah, that's a great operator there at MFS, but we'll come to talking about them a bit later on. Uh, his idea was to get his commercial license uh, followed by an instructor rating and finally get out of his, uh, and these are his words, his boring office job and do something he's always had a passion for. Uh, now, the time he sent this email a couple of weeks ago, actually, and uh, he said he's uh, going for his medical. A little bit concerned about uh, some issues there with his medical, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how he goes with that. But uh, he's saying here that he's looking for suggestions in the aviation industry for some good contacts to chase up. Now, uh, he's worked as an office coordinator. He's had about 20 years of business experience running the family business, uh, but he's never lost the flying bug. Uh, he said he's also pretty good with a camera and uh, digital imaging. Now, uh, he's looking for suggestions, folks, uh, for um, places that he might look for work in the flying game. Uh, not, I guess, not specifically flying, but uh, doing admin sort of work. So, uh, I, I gave him some suggestions for some of the operators that I could think of down there at Moorabbin, but uh, folks, if you want to uh, help Brahm out here with uh, some suggestions uh, or even some job offers, well, you can send them via the podcast. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a little bit um, difficult to know. It, you know, I, I guess jobs are sometimes hard to come by in the aviation in- industry. Uh, I really don't know for sure how it looks on the uh, the admin side of stuff. Grant, uh, what do you think? Really, from what all I've seen so far of working in the industry, a lot of it comes down to who you know, being in the right place at the right time and getting a lot of information out, making sure people know you exist, things like that. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm working in admin and um, 
doing a bit of a desk job as well as the the crewing in the ballooning industry. And uh, that's mostly because I was in the right place at the right time and managed to cook up a deal. Admittedly, part of it's to uh, pay back my training bond. <laughs> you know, sold my soul to learn to fly balloons, but that's the way it is. Thanks for sending that email in, Bram, and uh, we're, we'll keep up to date. And he's actually sent us uh, another email back since then uh, with some interesting suggestions for some topics we might chase up next year to do with medicals and medical standards and stuff. And uh, he suggested that we might uh, talk to someone at Air Services there about uh, medical standards and uh, on, a, on a number of different levels. And I actually think that's interesting. You know, Grant, I was talking to a friend of mine at work recently who uh, had a PPL and has had his medical pulled um, after he had treatment for prostate cancer. And even though he is um, clear of uh, or completely clear of the disease now, I mean, he's had all the, the you know the surgery and all the rest of it, perfectly clear, perfectly fit and healthy. Casser has uh, still decided to uh, pull his medical, and uh, I find that just bizarre. I, I, I've never heard of that. I don't know whether our listeners can uh, give us any advice that way, but that to me just seems just beyond the pale. Yeah, mate, that does sound pretty full on. It'd be interesting to hear what uh, what Casser have to say about that. Yeah, so uh, that'll be something that we'll chase up in the new year, and um, I'm sure we can find somebody from the uh, the medical people there at uh, Casser or at Air Services, whoever takes care of that sort of stuff these days. And uh, yeah, well, so that'll be something we'll chase up, uh, as I say, uh, next year, because uh, right now things are pretty full. We've only got one episode to go after this one for 2010, and uh, then we need a bit of a rest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need the rest. I, I, you've got to get unchained from that production desk. Mate. Yeah, I've got to get out of here. I, I actually, I don't know what life's like outside of the door of this studio. I've been stuck in here a lot lately. Anyway. No, it's not worth it. It's not what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Another uh, bit of mail we got here was from Canada. Ian Kershaw sent us in an email entitled Great Podcast. So, of course, straight to the top of the pile. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered what it took to get to the top of our pile. Yeah, so Ian says, uh, recently signed up to the Airplane Geeks podcast, thoroughly enjoys it, and uh, heard our segment there that we do every week, the Australian News Desk. And so he said it prompted him to uh, take a listen to our show. He's found it a little bit on the long side. Yes, well, uh, uh, we know, but we try to keep them reasonably short but we fail every week at that so sorry about that sorry mate i just waft too much interesting on a side note they're just talking about that though when we put out the few shorter episodes people some people say to us gee we'd like them longer and then if we make longer ones some people uh, prefer them a bit shorter so don't know what we're going to do there but win mate yeah but the thing is with our interviews we we tend to let them run if they're going well and they're really interesting we we don't like to cut them short so uh, sometimes that becomes a bit of a challenge but uh, you know we hope that if uh, you know a lot of people might use this when they're commuting to and from work that uh, perhaps they can listen to half on the way to work and half on the way home or something like that. So, uh, wow, that's a short commute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, not for me, actually. My commute from uh, here to where I work is about five minutes. So yeah, It's a hard stagger. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Ian goes on to say here that he uh, really liked the interviews with Nigel Lamb. Uh, says he's extremely skilled and uh, seems if it has wings and an engine, he can fly it. Well, I'd have to agree with that. And uh, says that he's uh, has no no ears and graces and such a real gentleman. Well, you know, it's it's re- it's always a pleasure to talk to Nigel Lamb. Uh, he, he's really entertaining. And I think, the how many times have we spoken to him now? Three or four times? Yeah, at least three. Yeah, really. You know, it's it's interesting. He gets into the real technical stuff. It's actually like talking to one of your old flight instructors again, actually. And um, <laughs> he's always got interesting stuff to say. And even though he's not Australian, of course, the link is, of course, that uh, the Red Bull Aeros, you know, sigh when it was running, uh, does come down here to Australia, of course. So, uh, you know, that that's enough link for us. And uh, we, we certainly hope to stay in touch with Nigel uh, next year. I think we'll probably uh, talk to him one, once or twice next year, as we will do with all our Red Bull Aeros pilots that contribute to the show occasionally and uh, just uh, check how things are going and we'll just keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, so he actually runs a blog which is entitled YYCE3 and of course he's up there in Calgary in Canada so that's a uh, quite an interesting blog that talks about the various and sundry movements that happened at the airports around that area so uh, Grant, yeah, pop a link in the show.
show notes. I certainly will. It's always good to get great letters from uh, from people listening to the show. And here's another one from Luke Murphy. Uh, he's based out of Hong Kong and uh, travels around Asia and uh, China, does a bit of flying there. And uh, he really does enjoy his recreational aviation and his gliding. And he was suggesting that we uh, do a little bit of content on gliding. And I can assure you that's definitely on our to-do list. Uh, I've got about uh, three or four hours in gliders uh, that I picked up while I was living in Brisbane. Uh, really enjoyed flying gliders. It's it's a great way to fly an aircraft and a good challenge. Nothing quite like being in a thermal with a whole lot of other aircraft orbiting around you, all trying to gain lift. But uh, yeah, he suggested going out to Korowa, Benalla, Bacchus Marsh, places like that. And uh, yeah, I've, I've always joked that my favorite thing to do would be to fly balloons in the morning when there's not many thermals, then jump in a glider and fly gliders during the, the day with the thermals. And once everything subsides, get out and fly a balloon again. That would be an awesome day. A couple of things that we haven't covered at all on the podcast so far, and, uh, you know, we, we, we think we sort of spread it around pretty well, but uh, I guess two things we haven't covered is gliders and uh, skydiving is the other one. Uh, so, uh, yeah, actually, and I said to him that I've actually got some uh, family up just past Benella, so uh, I'm sure we'll be heading up that way at some point during the summer with the family, uh, the new family trucks are all packed to the gunnel, so I'm <laughs> sure that I could sneak away to Benella and uh, grab a few interviews there. That'd be, uh, you know, really interesting stuff. I've never been in a glider myself. Oh, haven't you? No. Oh, mate, it's absolutely awesome. I- I'd love to get back into a glider when I've um, finished doing some of my ballooning, but... Uh yeah, dive back into gliding, it'd be awesome. And uh, as to skydiving, well, yeah, that's definitely on the cards for me. Yes, well, good luck, mate, and um, I'll be happy to watch you as you jump. Well, just remember from this, other perspective. If, at first, if at first you don't succeed, perhaps skydiving is not for you. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Luke, we really appreciate you sending in. We actually sent a couple of follow-up emails to him, uh, and uh, he sent one back. So uh, yeah, he's, it's, it's kind of cool. He's, he's passing the word around there in Hong Kong, which we really appreciate. We've actually noticed, we put a little cluster maps thing on our website, and we're noticing quite some traffic from around that region of the world, so uh, we really appreciate that. It's, it's it's quite cool. So, and I'll tell you what, just as a footnote, there, um, his email starts by saying, "Your great podcast." So, uh, <laughs> all right, <laughs> write that on it. We'll always read your email out as long as it doesn't follow with some abuse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the last bit of uh, email we got here was from Ed Stubbs, our friend Ed Stubbs over there in the west, and uh, he sent us a link to uh, an interview. Now, I'm sure many of you have probably already heard this one, but this is an interview with uh, the Czech captain. Uh, who was on QF32, the Airbus A380 that had the uh, the engine uh, failure uh, that everybody knows about by now. So I uh, click on there. I haven't actually heard it all the way through, but what I have heard, it's uh, really fascinating stuff. And if you go to that website, you'll actually see some shots that the uh, gentleman took with his iPhone. Uh, actually, I believe his name is Captain Dave Evans. Fascinating interview. Highly recommend you listen to it. If you haven't already heard episode 46 of this show, where we had uh, Captain Richard Woodward talking in the uh, theoretical, I guess, about what they would have been seeing, Captain Evans here will tell you exactly what they saw on there. And yeah. Interesting information on that one, Grant. Highly worth uh, a listen. And uh, thanks very much to Ed Stubbs for uh, sending that through to us. And Ed's uh, been quite a great contributor to the show uh, this year, and we really appreciate that, mate. Now, we want to get across to shout-outs. And, uh, Grant, big shout-out this week goes to uh, our friend Damien Rose. Just uh, recently looking at uh, Damien's blog, and it looks like, uh, boy, he's powering ahead. Uh, now, for those of you who are newcomers to the show and perhaps not familiar, Damien is a, a gentleman who decided he had enough of his uh, day job, He's always wanted to be a pilot, and decided that he's going to... Uh, within the course of 2010 become a commercial pilot well uh, he sold his house and uh, he's gone off to the I believe it's the Royal Queensland Aero Club and uh, boy he's powering ahead I think he's got his commercial and uh, now he's got his multi-engine command instrument rating so uh, awesome stuff (laughs) 
That's absolutely amazing, Grant. I'll tell you what, uh, you know, that's taken a, a huge effort. That would be a huge effort for him to to, uh, to get all of those ratings knocked over this year. He's, he's done all his uh, GFPT, PPL, CPL instrument rating. He's done his multi-engine. And uh, the last we heard uh, going on his website, which is at uh, DamienJRose.com, he's uh, now doing his Cessna Caravan endorsement. Am I jealous? You bet I am. Damn straight. Hear that silence? That's our burning jealousy. Uh, great work, Damien. Absolutely amazing. You've set your goals and you've set yourself up so you can focus on them. And man, have you done that? So I tell you what, if there's anybody out there from the airlines listening, this is one motivated individual and uh, <laughs> you ought to give him a job like right now. <laughs> Oh, totally. And uh, we certainly hope that uh, Damien will uh, continue to send us in uh, some updates on how he's going. Uh, he has sent us some cockpit audio in the past, which has been really interesting to listen to, and uh, we're certainly hoping we'll get some more from him soon. Cool. Okay, our next shout-out goes to our friends at Thromby Air, Robert E. Coli. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, the A, and they've got a really good art department there at Thromby Air, Grant. Oh, yeah, there's been some great uh, drawings and depictions coming out there, and uh, you and I have been shown in a couple of the uh, adverts that they've done and various other pictures that uh, they've produced, but the latest one they've just released is absolutely awesome, and in fact, you'll see it as the episode's album art on your iPod at the moment. Thanks to uh, Robert and the Thromby team for putting together that wonderful picture of Steve and I late at night recording an episode. Yeah, which is what we're doing right now, as a matter of fact. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> We've got to get out of the habit of recording at 1am, Grant. Well, normally we don't because I'm crewing, but tomorrow I'm not, so we're taking advantage of the moment. You can also check out that cartoon that they've done for us there. It's on our Facebook page as well, and uh, really funny stuff. And, uh, Grant, um, surprisingly accurate. You know, I'm thinking those guys at Thrombie Air must have a camera somewhere here in the studio that I've not found yet. Yeah, well, there is that possibility, although, as a friend of mine pointed out, my glasses are pink, not grey, and I don't eat fish. But <laughs> yeah. otherwise, it's spot on. Uh, yeah, it's got a few more contributors to this show uh, looking at that and saying, well, where's my cartoon? So, uh, well... We'll pass that along to uh, Robert E. Coli the next time we're speaking to him. There you go. The Discount Airline Man of Mystery. That's the one. <laughs> okay, and one more shout-out this week goes to uh, Michael and Rosalind Gilmore from downwind.com.au where we host our forums, and the guys out there at um, Rabin Flying Services, MFS. Uh, Grant, they had a barbecue recently, which we made a fleeting visit to, fleeced a few sausages out of them at least, and a couple oh, of yes. cans of drink. It was a really nice day. That was absolutely awesome. It was great to uh, put some names and faces together and go and check out the simulator that Demi- MFS have got down the other end of the building and uh, the other part was that uh, they had some uh, discount flights going available, either an introduction to flight or a uh, check flight. Now, Steve, I believe you took advantage of that. Oh, you bet I did. Uh, in fact, one of my friends is an instructor there at uh, MFS, so I, I collared him very quickly and we uh, we grabbed a uh, Warrior and uh, did a, a quick flight, about a one-hour flight. And, uh, you know, I, I don't get as much flight time as I'd like these days, but it is nice at least to be able to get a few uh, odd hours here and there. And uh, it's taken me a while, Grant, but it's finally pushed my uh, total uh, aeronautical experience over the 470 hours mark so uh, yeah it's taken me taken me many many years to get it from 460 to 470 but uh, there you go and uh, boy am I rusty I'll tell you what actually you know it's interesting it's the first time I've flown in the the class D uh, airspace and uh, uh, interesting to note I, I thought that the uh, the procedures airborne are, are really pretty similar apart from having to uh, use the squawk code 3000 in uh, Moravin's control zone and then flicking it across to uh, 1200 once you're uh, you're outside their, uh, their control zone there the three mile band but uh, the one thing I did find that's changed a lot is the uh, the ground handling procedures. And um, whilst I think it's a great idea that 
you know, they've brought uh, surface movement controllers back at these smaller aerodromes. I actually find the procedures probably a little bit pedantic, I think. Uh, back when I was learning to fly back in the early 90s, of course, they had Mrab and Ground, and, uh, you know, that was under the old GAP procedures, and, you know, you still had to get all your clearances and all the rest of it, which is, of course, only appropriate when you're crossing active runways. But uh, the procedures there, to me, seem to perhaps a little bit overkill, but that's that's just my opinion. Be interested to see what the listeners have to say about that. But uh, all in all, it is good to see that there is uh, a lot more uh, uh, safety-orientated uh, controlling going on at that airport. So, yeah, that was a good experience for me. Uh, pulled the landing off. Uh, you know, it was one of the better landings I've done lately. And the last, last time I went flying was uh, pretty shocking, considering it's in a Cessna, which is my aircraft of choice. But uh, <laughs> Oops. Yeah, no, very happy. So thanks to uh, to the guys at Downwind for organising those cheap flights. And, uh, you know, big thank you to MFS. And, uh, you yeah, know, we'll give them a plug grant, mfs.com.au. If you're down there at Moorabbin, certainly, uh, and you're looking to hire a plane, certainly send your business that way. Oh, definitely. Uh, we also took advantage of the uh, discount flights, and uh, Nikolai's already had his first loggable flight. He clocked up 0.7 hours and did his uh, TIFF. Uh, it was officially uh, an introduction to controls, but uh, we also have a friend who's an instructor down there. He's also an aerobatics instructor and knows that Nikolai's had some stick time in aerobatics in a uh, yak. So they did a few stalls and steep turns and a bit of a pushover at the top of a climb, and Nikolai came back totally buzzed, very, very happy. So uh, he's had his flight. I've got mine on, on the cards to uh, go out and just see how damn rusty I am as well. <laughs> it's, it's been a very long time since I tried to fly a warrior. Yeah, well, I tell you what, uh, Nikolai the boy genius. Uh, Grant, uh, tell the listeners what he was doing uh, this evening just before we started uh, <laughs> recording, if you don't think he hasn't got the flying bug after this experience. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, hitting my books. Uh, I've got the old Aviation Theory Centre book pack, the uh, basic aeronautical knowledge, and Trevor Tom's flight manual, um, his flight training manual, and the uh, aviation um, phraseology VHF radio manual. And he was starting to go through the back and taking down notes. He's uh, He knows that uh, if he gets the good marks this year, um, if he's showing a good sign as he's going through his next year of high school, then uh, I'll be contributing and uh, organizing for him to get his RA Oz license. So uh, I think over the school holidays, we may shoot down to Turidan and give him a trial flight in a Jabiru as well. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, Nikolai, how old is he, Grant? He's uh, just about to turn 13. Yep, 13 on January 1st. There you go. And he's only a short fella, so he'll fit nicely into one of those Jabiru's. <laughs> he's short at the moment, mate. He's growing pretty fast. But uh, yeah, the good thing about RAOs is you can go solo at 15. Whereas uh, if you go the full GA route, you've got to go uh, solo at 16. So excellent work. So, uh, Grant, I guess that wraps up this episode. I guess we should mention just before we do uh, close off, however, that uh, Rosemary Arnold, uh, she was talking about her book, Grant, and having a book launch, and she did that up at Sydney Airport during the week, and you were there. That's correct. I did the the thing that perhaps no one ever thought PCDU would be brave enough to do. I flew Tiger Airways. (laughs) You didn't, That's did you? Right. I totally did, man. And it was awesome. I, I must have worked the system right. I uh, I did all my booking well in advance. I had done my web check-in at least a week before I flew. So all that was done. All I had to do was show up to the gate. Now, I've got to say, the flights were very much just like flying any other airline. Admittedly, the amenities at the gates were kind of interesting. And it was more of a... Yeah, not, not quite what you you would expect if you're used to Virgin or Qantas with their gate lounges. But yeah, got on the plane and a professional crew flew me up to Sydney. Coming back from the book launch, we did have a couple of problems. Uh, apparently the aircraft was coming in from, um, from Singapore. So it must have landed over and taxied over to the... Uh, international side then being brought over to uh, the domestic side where we were afterwards 
but uh, they were quite a few hours late departing, mostly because the aircraft itself was a little late getting in. And then uh, they had a bit of a systems problem. The pilot was saying on the uh, on the announcement later that uh, it was a 15 second computer system reboot and a one hour paperwork trail. <laughs> Good lord! Well, I guess that could happen to anybody at any airline, Green. Pretty much, and they were reasonably good at keeping us informed about what was going on. So um, fortunately, I, I didn't have to experience the downside of Tiger. It was all pretty good. They've got about 10 aircraft in their fleet now. And all up, it was, if you go into a flight with Tiger expecting it to be a bus line and you and you do everything you can to make sure you're ready to go, I wasn't traveling with any anything other than carry-on. So uh, yeah, it was a pretty good run. Mm. It, it worked okay for me. So shock horror. Who thought I'd ever say that about Tiger? Well, you can say that, Grant, but I still don't forgive them. <laughs> I know, I know. But hey, you know, look, it was worth it to fly Tiger to race up there and uh, spend the afternoon with Rosemary and her guests. Uh, it was a wonderful book launch. Her book is, of course, about uh, first females above Australia. A lot of the first ladies flying in Australia uh, for various operations, including ballooning, fixed wing, parachuting. Deb Laurie was, of course, there um, as the first female pilot with ANSET. Uh, Susie Duncan was also there. She's set up wheelies with wings and um, a number of other ladies, including uh, Aminta Hennessy and uh, one who uh, we're hoping to get a chat with later on was of course Jean Burns she was the first Australian lady to jump out of an aircraft and she parachuted over Essendon Airport in 1937 at the age of 17 she was the youngest female pilot of the time getting her pilot's license at the age of 17 also in 1937 and uh, she was at the launch absolutely wonderful lady delightful to chat to and uh, she's just about to turn 91 as we record this so uh, wonderful to see her still out and around and uh, we'll be um, organising a chat with her in the very near future. Yeah, as you said, you recorded some interviews up there while you are up there, so uh, we'll have those out in a later episode. And uh, we'll, you know, we'll hope to get Rosemary back on again. Uh, you know, it's a bit sad we had to cut her short. In fact, I had to go and collect my kids from school, which is the only reason we did cut it short, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a fun interview, really, and we had a lot of laughs doing that one. So uh, a big thanks to Rosemary for uh, coming on the show and allowing us to come up to the book launch. That was that was really uh, really cool. Definitely a lot of fun, and uh, it's going to be some good stuff come out of that. Okay, and just with regard to uh, the interview there with Dan Morris, now uh, Dan is thinking about doing his own podcast about uh, New Zealand aviation and how things are going, but uh, he's uh, going to uh, look at providing some content here to us uh, in a segment that we're uh, tentatively going to call across the ditch or across the Dutch, depending on which side of it you're on. Uh, so we're looking for uh, people to send in suggestions uh, to send across to Dan for stories. So if, if you've got some interesting stories about there, we, we have been looking for more New Zealand content and uh, we're really hopeful that uh, having Dan on, on board here uh, will uh, be just a really great way to do that. And with that said, we'll wrap episode 49 up uh, now. Episode 50 will be our last one for 2010. Uh, 50 for 50. We'll just drop it in there and uh, I'm looking at you, Jeremy Peck. It was your yeah. idea. Go on, Pecky. 50 for 50. You were the one who suggested it. Yeah, yeah. So at least... Uh, at least Jeremy Peck can do that. So how do you feel, Jeremy? Do you wish you hadn't said it all those months ago? Yeah, we didn't know we'd make it this far ourselves. So yeah, we're looking forward to episode 50 now. We were considering uh, putting the content we recorded recently at the RAF base ambling into episode 50, but we think we might hold that off for one more episode. Uh, there was a just a, an absolute swag of content that we, uh, that we got that day, and it's uh, frankly taking me a long time to produce. And we really want to make sure, out of respect to all of those uh, wonderful people up there at Ambling, that we really get that episode right. So we think we might make that one 51 
instead of 50. Uh, we've got some uh, some other content that we've recorded uh, that's been sitting here for a while that we, we really need to get out. So we think we might pop that into uh, the show coming up uh, for, you know, which will wrap up 2010. Our 28th episode for the year and our 50th one, Grant. We're really looking forward to that. Uh, that's a lot of numbers there, mate. Yeah, a lot of numbers. We love stats here at uh, Playing Crazy Down Under. So thanks very much for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with our big episode 50 of Playing Crazy Down Under. But until then, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website, or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Hello, Maja. Hello, Faja. Schmuck and a pancake. Are we ready? Right. Okay, the yes. hardest thing about this one is going to be keeping on track, isn't it? <laughs> uh, there's an outtake. All right. Yeah, yeah. So they've, they've basically uh, rationalized a lot of what used to go on at other, other airfields, um, RNZAF airfields around, Austra- uh, there, around New Zealand. Yeah, there's yep. an outtake. So but, Dan, um, oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, hello. No, no, yes. no, go ahead. Go, finish that off and I'll, we'll move to something else. Uh, yep, there we go. <laughs> He's finished. <laughs> so, Dan, uh, there's always people here. I have my son home here today who's making lots of noise. And that's a wrap. Okay. My and I'm spent. <laughs> oh, jeez, your poor girlfriend. You're over that quick. <laughs> uh, All right, uh, now, now you can say hello, Chris. <laughs> Hello. Hello, hey Chris. You're sick. Go to bed. Oh, fine. Thanks. <laughs> and our first one. Oh, no, I've got these out of order now. <laughs> Smack. Idiot. And uh, yeah, so it's another really packed interview. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's a really another. And so yeah, Grant, another really packed episode.